James chapter 4, and we are going to cover today verses 1 to 10. So these are the words of God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Heavenly Father, as we open Your Word this morning, we are reminded all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Lord, we invite you, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your precious word to our hearts. And as you do, Lord, we ask, please teach us, correct us. Train us in righteousness. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said together, Amen. One of the harsh realities of living in a fallen world that deeply impacts us all is the reality of relational conflict. If you are married and you go home today and after church you and your spouse get into an argument about the kids, the finances, something else, and voices are raised and withdrawal takes place, well, that very likely is going to ruin the rest of your afternoon, if not the rest of your day. Uh, Hopefully, it won't ruin your entire week. More painful than such short-term conflicts are prolonged seasons of conflict with a spouse, a family member, or dear friend. One place many experience conflict at times is in the workplace. Some of you know what it's like to dread going to work because of what awaits you when you arrive. Another day, another day marked by relational tension and strife. As you well know, as you all well know, in this broken world, conflict happens in every sphere of life. And we all feel the effects. If the church you are part of is embroiled in dispute and dissension, 
Well, you will feel the effects if the country you live in is torn apart from political strife. Well, you will feel the effects if the country that you live in is at war with another nation. You will feel the effects. Consider our brothers and sisters right now who on this Lord's Day are are worshiping Him in Ukraine. And Russia. Even when conflicts don't necessarily directly involve us, the waves of trouble that they produce often still come our way. Dissension, strife, conflict. It's a horrible thing. And this is true no matter what the context a marriage, a family, a business, a church, a community, or a country. It then follows that one of, one of the deepest desires we all have is for peace. Peace in our relationships. This is reflected in our prayers. We often pray, Lord, would you just bring peace? Would you bring peace in the world? Peace in my country. Peace in my marriage. Peace in my family. We all just want peace, don't we? We want conflict to go away. We want turmoil to cease. And that desire certainly is right and good. We can't help but feel the sad effects of conflicts around us in a fallen world. And a certain amount of conflict in our own lives is inevitable on this side of eternity. Even so, I find it tremendously encouraging that Scripture and our passage today make it very clear. They make it very clear. God does desire us as His people to experience a high degree of peace in our relationships with one another. God does desire that we would not be just like the world around us, constantly embroiled in conflict. God does desire that a fruit of the gospel in our lives, would be relational peace. And that is exactly why in our passage today, James corrects his first readers. He corrects them for behaving like the world by engaging in so much conflict. So in an attempt to pastor them and help them, in our text, James identifies the root conflicts cause of their conflicts so that they can repent, be reconciled, and thereby experience God's peace in their relationships. If a person is sick and exhibits certain symptoms, we all know it's important to identify the underlying illness that is actually causing the symptoms so that the right course of treatment can be pursued. You obviously don't want to treat an infection with chemotherapy or treat cancer with antibiotics. Likewise, diagnosing the root cause of relational trouble properly is critical to resolving it. And in our passage, James seeks to help his original readers to do just that. He seeks to help them diagnose the underlying cause of their discord properly so that the right healing remedy might be applied. In short, he helps them to see that the symptom of relational conflict is primarily caused by the deep-seated illness of inordinate desires 
cravings, idols, as it were, that rule our lives. Put another way, his overarching point and the main theme of our passage is this. The root cause of relational conflict is unfulfilled, idolatrous desires. The root cause of relational conflict is unfulfilled, idolatrous desires. What then is the cure, you ask? Nothing less than humble repentance. The cure is humble submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ rather than the lordship of our own personal desires. That's the message of our text. I trust as we go along, you will see how our passage bears this out. Let us now consider a survey of the text. In verse 1, you can look there. James asks his original readers the probing question, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? James' aim in asking this question is to help them and us and our relationships with others to walk in keeping with the wisdom that comes down from above rather than the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's chapter 3, verse 15, which we looked at last week. This is a key theme in James, living and speaking in accordance with the wisdom of God rather than the folly of man. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not, James says, end of verse 1, please look there, passions at war within you? He continues on, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So there it is. What causes fights and quarrels? The worst of which in human relationships can lead to murder. Well, James is clear. The underlying cause is passions that are at war within our hearts. Unfulfilled wants drive conflict. Covetous desires fuel conflict. The word translated passions in the original language refers to desires for pleasure. It has to do with seeking what is pleasurable to the senses. Older translations use the word lust instead of pleasures, referring not primarily to sexual lust, um, but to all kinds of inordinate desires. So, desires, desires for pleasure, and more generally just desires, coveting, craving, lusting after something that you do not have, being envious, as the NASB has it, James is clear, these things are the hideous infection, as it were, that yields the terrible and painful symptom of relational conflict. In Colossians 3.5, the Apostle Paul identifies coveting as idolatry. So, do you, do you crave something that you don't have? that someone else does? Well, that is idolatry, Paul says. Again, according to James, this is the underlying source, the root cause of relational conflict. Idolatrous, covetous, envious desires. In verse 3, James points out that his readers' cravings are so strong that those cravings spill over into their prayer lives. Their prayers, he makes clear, are not in line with kingdom priorities. Their prayers are merely selfish prayers aimed at gaining the earthly passions, pleasures, lusts 
of verse 1 that they so desire and covet. So in verse 4, James lovingly rebukes his readers for their folly and worldly orientation. That's what we have here. It's loving pastoral rebuke. He rebukes them. You can look there in in verse 4. It's pretty strong. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. This reminds us when our hearts are captivated and ruled by desires for that which is not God. Well, in a very real sense, we commit spiritual adultery. We evidence a kind of tight-knit friendship with the world, verse 4, that represents enmity and hostility towards God. This is such a problem because verse 5, you can look there, our God is a jealous God. God is jealous, of course, in a positive way, not in the sinful way that we often are. The first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment forbids idolatry of any kind. For His glory and our good, dear brothers and sisters, God never allows His people to replace them. Never. Even temporarily, with anyone or anything else, Yahweh God will allow no rivals in our hearts and lives. He will not allow us to make golden calves, as it were, out of our bank accounts, our jobs, our marriages, our children, our position in the church, our ministry, our health. Anything. God very simply will not allow Himself to be replaced. So what powerful antibiotic is necessary to to cure this insidious infection of our idolatrous, covetous, conflict-producing desires? Well, in verse 8, we find the answer. Humility. You see that there? The antibiotic is humility. We must humble ourselves before the Lord because as the Scriptures say, verse 8, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We must humble ourselves before God and verse 7, submit ourselves anew to His Lordship rather than to our idolatrous desires. The point is, in order for conflict to cease, which we all desire, in order for conflict to cease, heart change is necessary. Christ needs to actually, in reality, function as Lord of my life. Not my personal desire. Verse 7, James goes on to say, we must resist the devil, who we know from other scriptures entices us above all to replace God with other things. The devil, in a very real sense, is behind all idolatry. Thankfully, when we do resist the devil, when we don't yield to his temptations, there is a wonderful promise. Again, verse 7, he will flee. When we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. Verse 8, <laughs> and the devil will flee. Praise the Lord. Furthermore, when we repent of our double-mindedness, verse 8, of yielding to idolatry while simultaneously claiming to serve Christ, when verse 9, we repent of our idolatry in a deep, humble, heartfelt way, there is again a wonderful promise. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. When we have yielded ourselves to sin and idolatrous desire, which we have all done, and we've all done repeatedly, there's nothing more freeing that we can do than to humble ourselves before the living God 
and to acknowledge our sin, to own it and repent of it, and then to trust that in God's time and in His way, He will exalt us. He will honor us. There is remarkable irony here. When we, when we selfishly assert our own desires, our own will, what do we get? Conflict. Conflict. Yet when we will but repent and humbly submit ourselves to God's will, that humble attitude actually positions us to be promoted by God and used by God in powerful ways to minister to others. In this, God's economy is the exact opposite of the world's. The world says, assert yourself, promote yourself, exalt yourself. Just don't be too obvious about it. In contrast, God says, God says, go low. Humble yourself before God and man and watch what I will do. Those are the ethics of the kingdom of God, quite different than the kingdom of this world. So clearly this passage um, has a great deal to say to you and I on this topic of relational conflict. It contains much wisdom that can help us to resolve conflict peaceably. That's what we want, isn't it? We want the conflicts that we have to be resolved peaceably. We want the peace of God to characterize our relationships. Well, thankfully, there's much wisdom to be found in this passage that can help all of us get to where we want to go. So, three principles of conflict-resolving wisdom drawn from our text. Principle number one, in conflict, consider what you want that you are not getting. Consider what you want that you are not getting. As we've said in verses 1 and 2, James identifies the primary cause of all human conflict. Passions. <laughs> Passions at war within you. You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. So, newsflash everyone. What is the root cause of your relational conflicts? And my relational conflicts as well, desires gone berserk. <laughs> desires gone haywire. This helps me to see that when I find myself in relational conflict, a critical diagnostic question to ask is, what is it that I want right now <laughs> that I'm not getting? In other words, what desire right now in this moment is functionally ruling my heart? What desire for perhaps even something good has become so strong, so strong that it is functionally an idol that is ruling me right now? Often when we find ourselves in conflict, we, we're blind, if we're honest. We're blind to the spiritual infection within, as it were. We're blind to the inordinate desires within producing the painful symptom of, of relational conflict that we are experiencing. And as I think about this, I think one reason for our blindness is that our desires, which can lead us into conflict, our desires themselves are often good. They're not always good, but they are, the desires themselves are often good. An example of this, Doug Wilson in his teaching on marriage drawn from Ephesians 5 points out that husbands generally have a deep desire for respect. And wives, generally speaking, have a strong desire, a deep desire to feel truly loved. And I think that's, that's true. I think it's very true. And I think it's not wrong either. Uh, these are good desires. I think we'd all agree. It's not wrong for a husband to want his wife. 
to show him respect. And it's not wrong either for a wife to want her husband to truly love her and cherish her in a Christ-like way. That said, is it possible for a husband to so idolize his wife's respect that if he doesn't get it, he then expresses sinful anger towards her and he gets angry because she's not respecting him? Yes, that's certainly possible. Likewise, is it, is it possible for a wife to so idolize feeling loved and cherished by her husband that she then disrespects him when he fails to do that? Yes, it is. And actually, this is not an uncommon dynamic in marriage. A man fails to truly love and cherish his wife as he ought. The wife, in turn, is understandably very hurt by that. And in response, she sinfully turns around and disrespects her husband. He, in turn, becomes sinfully angry with her and fails even more to show her the Christ-like love that God calls him to show her. And it can be a vicious, ever-repeating cycle that, that can produce an unhappy marriage. It can produce real tension in a marriage. And as I see it, there really are two problems in this scenario. First, in spite of their respective deficiencies, the man ought to demonstrate love to his wife, and the wife ought to demonstrate respect for her husband. Why? Because that's what God's Word in Ephesians 5 commands. Secondly, secondly, the man has clearly made an idol out of his wife respecting him. He craves respect. And that desire is out of control such that when he doesn't get what he wants, he becomes sinfully angry and stops loving her in the way that God calls him to. Similarly, the wife has made an idol out of her very good desire for her husband to truly show her Christ-like love. We know because when she doesn't get the love that she wants, well, she sins by disrespecting him. The sin, the anger, and the disrespect is what reveals idolatry in their hearts. If there were no idolatry, there would be no sin. Because as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, you could see from that example, desires for legitimately good things can become ruling desires. They can become little miniature idols that we worship. (laughs) And that control us. You can play out this type of scenario in a thousand ways. A parent has a good desire for their child to obey them. And eat their vegetables at dinner when they're told to do so. But can a good desire for a child to obey become idolatrous? Well, any parent here knows. Sure can. Sure can. And you know it has become idolatrous when the child once again disobeys the command, eat your vegetables, and not so edifying words come out of mommy and daddy's mouths. On this matter, David Pallison, summarizing John Calvin, said this. This is a powerful quote. The evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, pay attention, but in the fact that we want it too much. Natural affections become inordinate ruling cravings. We are meant to be ruled by godly passions and desires. Grasping that the evil lies in the ruling status of the desire, not in the object is frequently a turning point in self-understanding and seeing the need for Christ's mercies and in changing. 
Tim Keller explains the same concept even more simply. He says, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. Idolatry happens when we take good things and we make them ultimate things. In other words, idolatry is turning good things into many gods, idols that control us. So, here's a simple way that we can all apply this. The next time that you find yourself in relational conflict, ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. What is it that I want that I'm not getting? What idolatrous desire is ruling me right now? What good thing am I making an ultimate thing? Okay? What good thing am I making an ultimate thing? It could be a desire for respect. Good thing. Making an ultimate thing. Desire for approval. I just want everyone around me to approve of me or this person to approve of me. And they're not. And so now I'm angry. A desire for love, appreciation, comfort. I just want my environment to be at peace. And when I'm not, everyone around me is going to feel it. And there are conflicts. Desire for control. Okay? That can be another idol. There are many good things we can take and turn them into ultimate things. The good news is, as, as, as we learn to discern our own cravings, our own idols of the heart that tend to rule us, there is tremendous hope for change and more peace in our relationships. Because if I can identify specifically my own cravings that are contributing to the conflict, well, then I can repent. You know, what desires have become idols? I can repent of my idolatry. I can repent of a craving for approval or respect or love. Really, taking ownership of my life, being Lord of my life in that moment. I can repent of that. I can ask God to forgive me, receive His grace, and then truly start to love the other person rather than just continuing to push in conflict for whatever it is that I'm feeling that I want, whether it's that approval or that control or that sense of peace in my environment. Incidentally, quick book recommendation. Tim Keller has an excellent book on idolatry um, out there. It is is really good. It's called Counterfeit Gods. Really, really good. So if you want to dive into this more and try and think through this a little more, what what are some of the idols that can drive you? Um, I I commend that to you, actually. It it could really help all of our relationships if we think through these things. But that that book is really good, Counterfeit Gods. Also, um, David Pallison has some amazing articles on this subject, the late David Pallison from CCEF. And actually, Tim Keller credits David Pallison with a lot of what he says in Counterfeit Gods. So if you get Counterfeit Gods, you're sort of getting Pallison and Keller together. But those are, they're really good resources, and I commend those to you. All right. Principle of wisdom number two we're going to draw from the passage. In conflict, okay, oh, this is so huge. (laughs) May God help us with this. In conflict and at all times, diligently watch over your own heart. Okay? In conflict and at all times, diligently watch over your own heart. I was really, really struck in this passage by James' rebuke of his first readers in verse 4. You can just glance down there. He says, you adulterous people. It's like, I mean, when I read this, it's just shocking. He says, you adulterous people, and proceeds to correct them for their worldliness. Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms, there's a verse in there that says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And it is very sobering to consider, brothers and sisters, that when we allow good desires to become ruling desires, we put ourselves in the camp, think about this, we put ourselves in the camp of those who run after other gods. 
And that helps us understand why James, sort of like an Old Testament prophet here, so strongly rebukes his readers for committing spiritual adultery. He draws attention to the fact that when we allow desires for things other than God to control us and rule us, we in reality, here's what we're doing, like it or not, we are running after counterfeit gods. We are running after counterfeit gods just like the world around us. And we actually, perhaps unknowingly, are behaving as enemies of the living God. If you think about it, if you, if you think of the people in the world who don't know Jesus, okay? People who don't know Jesus Christ at all. What are they ruled by? What are they ruled by? Well, they are ruled by vain idols. Vain idols. Vain idols such as money. Craving for money. Craving to be rich. Romantic love. If I don't have it, I'm going to find it no matter what the cost. Ease and comfort. Control, power, fame, approval. Praise of others. That's the unbelieving world around us. Those desires control the unbelieving world around us. And James' point in verse 4 of our passage is, When the people of God, hear me on this, when the people of God are controlled by those same idols, when the people of God are controlled by those same idols, they are literally committing spiritual adultery. So he says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people. And the evidence that they were adulterous people, the evidence that they were adulterous people is that they could not stop fighting. They could not stop fighting about things that had nothing to do with the kingdom of God, but instead had everything to do with envy and covetousness and idolatrous desire. This is, this is so sobering, brothers and sisters. Verse 4 helps us to understand how seriously God takes our idolatry. Okay, This isn't just a small thing. He sees it. He sees it as, as a kind of spiritual betrayal. I didn't come up with this language. I didn't come up with the language, you adulterous people. In light of this, we do well, I think you would agree with me, to heed the wisdom found in Proverbs 4.23, which says, watch over your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. Your heart leads you either to follow hard after God or to follow after personal, selfish desires. I'm also reminded of the words of Jesus, our dear Savior Jesus, who said, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added Unto you. So, so often, uh, I think we've got that one flipped on its head. If we're honest, we'd have to confess, often we have that verse flipped on its head. We often seek first all these things, right? We do. We often seek first all these things, the perfect house, the perfect marriage, the perfect family, the perfect job, the perfect physique. And we hope that we get the kingdom of God thrown in there, thrown in there somewhere. But we all know it doesn't work that way. The word of God is very clear. It doesn't work that way. Seek first. Seek first my kingdom, Jesus says. So I want to encourage you, Grace Community Church, my dear brothers and sisters, even as I preach to myself and encourage myself, Watch your heart. In both times of conflict and in times of peace, watch your heart and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Watch out, dear brothers and sisters, for covetousness. Watch out for subtle forms of envy. Looking at your friend fellow church member and saying, why can't my marriage be like theirs over there? Why can't my finances 
Why can't I have a buffer in my bank account like them? Or why can't I look that way? Or why can't my physique be like that? Why can't I have well-behaved kids, godly kids like that, that person over there? I mean, we can envy anything. And it's insidious and it is in all of us. We all struggle with this. We can envy other people's godliness. <laughs> we can envy anything. So my encouragement, watch out for envy. Seek first God's kingdom. May we all stay close to our dear Savior, Jesus Stay close, ever close to Him. May we cultivate our relationships within, with Him, with Jesus. May that be number one. And then may we also allow His priorities, God's priorities, Jesus' priorities, loving God, loving others, first and second commandment. Let those be our top priorities. Those are the kingdom priorities, loving God, loving others. Others. Everything else, any other desire you and I may feel, it's, it's secondary. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but it is secondary. Puritan Thomas Chalmers famously wrote a treatise entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that treatise, he said insightfully, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So, By God's grace, may you and I cultivate our love for Jesus Christ. Above all. Above all. May we ask God by the power of His Spirit to fill us. To free us from covetousness and idolatrous desires. May we ask Him Help us to love our dear Savior, Jesus, who bled and died for us more than anything. And then to live lives of worship, seeking first His kingdom. I trust that as we do that, desires for other things won't so easily captivate our hearts and carry us away into conflict when we don't get what we want. Principle of wisdom number three. In conflict, seek to humble yourself. In conflict, seek to humble yourself. I think it's safe to say that in the heat of conflict, there is nothing harder to do than to humble yourself. (laughs) You agree with me on that? In conflict, there's nothing harder to do than to humble yourself and to say, I was wrong. I sinned. Please forgive me. I think you'd agree. Humility and conflict doesn't usually, for most of us, come easily or quickly. That said, I want you to notice in the passage the divinely prescribed cure for relational conflict. The divine prescription to cure relational conflict. Humility. It's humility. That's what verses 6 to 10 are. An an exhortation inspired by God to all of us to wholehearted, humble repentance. James punctuates this section in verse 10 with the command, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So the imperative, the command, again this isn't from me, from God. The imperative, the command is humble yourselves. This means in conflict, that is what you must do. That is what I must do. In relational conflict, there is no other biblical alternative. We must voluntarily and proactively humble ourselves. We must ask God to forgive us for our idolatrous desires, which have instigated, perpetuated, and prolonged conflict, and we must humble ourselves, verse 7 again, to the lordship of Christ, to the lordship of Christ, rather than the lordship of our own personal desires. 
As verses 8 and 9 tell us, we must also draw near to God. As we're repenting, we must draw near to God. And in His presence, in His presence, we must humbly lament. Humbly lament our sin. We don't talk about this in modern day culture, but it's right there in the text. Humbly lament our sin, mourning, weeping. Do you see that there? If that seems over the top to you, if that seems over the top, you may not be grasping the seriousness of what James is talking about. If that seems over the top, don't forget, the sin James is addressing is out of control, conflict, strife-producing desires that lead to spiritual adultery. That's serious. That's betrayal. So when we have been found guilty of that, our idolatrous desires have led us into conflict, sadness over, let's call it what it is, our spiritual adultery is most appropriate. So we humble ourselves before the Lord, and having done that, we can then appropriately humble ourselves before the person that we're in conflict with, and then seek their gracious forgiveness. And we can do this, we can do all of this, knowing God delights, He delights, in His time and in His way to honor those who will intentionally humble themselves. comes with a promise. Those who humble themselves, He will exalt. All that to say, my encouragement to you is this. In relational conflict, let's seek to obey verse 10. I'm not trying to say more than is here. Let's seek to obey verse 10. Let us humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before God and those whom we are in conflict with, as that will greatly serve to promote God-glorifying reconciliation and peace in our relationships. Which, as we noted at the beginning, is something that we all desire. So let's bring this home. This morning we've seen that the primary cause of the symptom of relational conflict is the infection of unfulfilled, idolatrous desires. The band can join me on the stage. The primary cause of the symptom of relational conflict is the infection of unfulfilled, idolatrous desires. And the cure, the antibiotic is what? Humility, right? It's humble repentance. Brothers and sisters, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. There is a relational peace that God desires for His people. That needs to settle in on us. There is a relational peace that God desires for us. And that is why this text is here. That's why it is here. That is why the Holy Spirit put it here. God, by His Holy Spirit, desires us to live in harmony with one another, in our marriages, in our families, and our churches, and in this local church as well. That said, we need to be, to be clear on something. And you all know this. You know, you know it well from experience. On this side of eternity, relational peace doesn't come easily or cheaply, does it? <laughs> it doesn't. Relational peace comes always at a cost. And that cost, that cost is death to self. That cost, the cost of relational peace is death to idolatrous cravings. It's death to our own agenda. That's a simple way to put it. Death to our own agenda and submission to the Lord's. So I ask you, as we bring this, bring this to a close, where in your life, and I want to encourage you to think about this, where in your life and in your relationships Are you needing to die to yourself? Your own desires. Your own cravings. And in a fresh way, submit to the Lord. What desires, other than a desire to honor Jesus Christ, tend to rule your heart? 
What inward cravings can at times compel you to argue and to quarrel with another person? Whatever desires and cravings tend, tend to rule you specifically, desires for control, comfort, approval, money, whatever it is, whatever those desires are, I, I just want to encourage you, even as I'm talking to myself, even before I talk to you, let's see those things as, those, as idols, those inordinate cravings. Let's see them as Scripture does. Let's see them as idols. Let's see them not merely as our own personality quirks, that others need to endure, but rather as temptations to spiritual adultery. See them as spiritual infections, spiritual infections that need to be extracted by the power of the Spirit by means of God's healing remedy of humble repentance. And when the Holy Spirit makes you aware that a a particular idol is ruling your life, I want to encourage you, bring that idol. Bring that idolatrous craving before the Lord. Humbly ask the Lord to forgive you of your idolatry. Ask Him to forgive you. And then receive His forgiveness. Ask Him to forgive you. Receive His forgiveness. Knowing God Himself has said, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not Remember your sins. Isaiah 43, 25. Having then received his forgiveness, may we once again proceed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In all things, friends, may we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Trusting God that in His time and in His way, all things that we truly need will be added to us. Our God and Father, we thank You for how You have spoken to us through Your Word. Thank You for how You have opened the eyes of our hearts to see how we have at times been guilty of idolatry, which has led us into conflicts that we regret. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for allowing inordinate desires and cravings to rule us. Forgive us for not seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, we now receive your forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus who makes it possible for us to be forgiven fully and completely. Lord, we ask you as we leave this place today, Help us to do as Jesus commanded. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said to you, amen. Stand.